Hello. I'm Endegynon for Sarcoma UK. I recently met someone who had cancer and winced at being called brave or a fighter. She said, no, I have cancer. It's nothing to do with bravery or the ability to fight. It just is. But she could understand why people would say these things to her. They recognize that you're going through or you've gone through something pretty challenging and you're still standing. You're still here to talk about it. Emily Travis has been given a terminal diagnosis several times and she's still here. You might be tempted, as I was, to call her brave and a fighter, but she sees things rather differently. Let's join her as she sets out from her home in Wiltshire, heading to the Royal Marsden Hospital in London for a day of tests and chemotherapy. This is uh, Emily on my day eight treatment. I have my treatment for oloratumab uh, two weeks in three. So day one, which was last week where I have to have bloods and everything. And then um, seven days later, I have a day eight treatment. Um, And the nice thing about a day eight is that I no longer have to have bloods. So I don't have to be at the hospital ridiculously early. Um, And today I was due to be there for 10.30 to have a nurse review. Unfortunately, uh, Great Western Railway have other ideas. There are problems at Paddington. Um, So I went to get my train at eight o'clock this morning to get there in time and uh, found out that Paddington was shut and I couldn't get to London. So I've had to change plans and drive up instead. Uh, The issue with that is that I can't drive home again afterwards. And of course, um, everybody else is driving as well. So we're currently in the car on the M4. The traffic is dreadful. Um, It's 11 o'clock and I've been in the car for nearly three hours um, to get up to London. I was uh, at work on a very, very normal day at work. I worked as a a medical communications consultant, so I was running a team of uh, scientific writers and uh, very busy jobs. We were backwards and forwards. Um, I had two small children and a dog. had a very busy life. I was training for a half marathon and out running every day. And then one day I was just sat at work and um, my tummy hurt a little bit. Um, and I thought, oh, what did I, what did I eat for lunch? Um, and I, it kind of got progressively worse uh, to the point where a couple of days later I was thinking, well, maybe this isn't just a tummy bug and maybe I should go and see somebody. Um, but I was back at work again on the Monday and throughout the afternoon I just, it, it just got harder to move around and it wasn't extremely painful, but it was enough to make me think something's going wrong here. So uh, I I'd self-diagnosed, which I'm going to do. Um, I kind of thought I had some kind of kidney thing going on and I went to see the GP and the GP agreed with me, uh, gave me antibiotics for a few days, but nothing got any better and it was much getting much more painful. So she sent me through to the hospital for a scan. I think they thought it was probably either something to do with my kidneys or um, that something's got sort of around that area. So I was scanned and I was admitted onto the women's health ward for a while because the pain didn't get any better. And during the course of that week... I was, uh, they found out I had um, elevated CRP levels in my blood, which basically, um, it's a it's a little molecule that you get in your blood that tells you if it's high, either you've got an infection, so you're fighting off an illness, or it's um, evidence that something's like massively inflamed, so you've got a lot of swelling somewhere. Um, and the, the default is they expect it's infection. So they hit me with about six different antibiotics, and I threw up for a week uh, while I was <laughs> in hospital and felt horrendous. And then as soon as they stopped the drugs, I felt much better. 
better. So I was sent off home. And the moment I started moving around again, the pain came back. And that's what seemed to happen when I was moving. I was in pain. And so I went back again. Perhaps two or three times I was pushed around various different departments in my local hospital. It was actually, um, it's easy to talk about it now and, and you can say it all in a minute, but um, over the course of that four or five weeks, um, it was tedious because to be in that much pain, I was in so much pain some days that I was walking, crawling up the stairs in the hospital on all fours. I wasn't treated very well by the medical staff who I think started to doubt that there was anything wrong with me. And I think that was the hardest time, knowing that something was badly going wrong and having people look at you and like they didn't believe you. So I persevered, had a stand-up row at one point when they tried to send me home at because they just couldn't find anything and and I and I just said I can't drive I can't walk I can't look after my children somebody has to do something and at that point they did a, a CT uh, the following day so that's a, a, a type of scan where they're, they're kind of looking at your innards and they they did the CT uh, again I didn't get the results I waited all day I kept asking I was left in a hospital bed um, for about 10 hours and eventually somebody came over and said and uh, I said well I haven't seen the CT results could somebody have a look and I think at that point the general surgeon had a look at the scan and went oh shit uh, anyway they then came down to see me so this is now a Friday night and uh they said, well, you've got a mass near your kidney. We can't really tell what it is. Uh, it's probably absolutely nothing to worry about. These things are very common. It's Friday night. Everybody's gone home. And I, I looked at the discharge summary on the way home and nobody had explained it to me. And it, and it said, Mrs. Travis has a um, 10 centimeter tumor potential lymphoma. And I guess that's how I found out I had cancer in the car, in the back of the car with my two children either side of me. Um, that weekend was horrific. Let's just pause there for a moment. I know this isn't the first time that Emily has told this anecdote, but don't let her bright tone take away from the fact that this woman's just found out that she's got cancer while sitting in a car with her kids in the backseat. Uh, I think you learn as you go through a cancer diagnosis that you have these periods just uh, extreme stress and extreme distress and then kind of life moves on and you can't sustain the woe forever so it was a bit like that for the next few weeks so then it, it kind of went like a house of cards you know, then you have a biopsy and then I found out that I have a cancer called lyomyosarcoma Sounds like it's time for some education Helen? Lyomyosarcoma is a type of soft tissue cancer um, the soft tissue sarcomas arrive from cells of parts of the body that put us together. So, for example, muscle, fat, nerves and blood vessels. Lyomyosarcomas specifically come from smooth muscle cells um, and they are actually one of the more common soft tissue sarcomas that we find in adults. My name is Helen Stradlin, Sarcoma Specialist Nurse for Sarcoma UK. My role includes being the lead for the Sarcoma UK support line, a support line dedicated for anybody who has any queries or questions about sarcoma. You have to wait six weeks before you can be scanned again. And I went for a scan in February. And honestly, I was feeling so well. I'd got myself into such good shape before because I'm, I'm quite into all my exercise and I honestly thought that day I was going to be told I was going back to work and part of me was a little bit sad about that because I enjoy all the extra time with my children. And then they told me that the disease had spread again, uh, another tumour in my liver, and then it had spread into my bones and my spine and into my left arm. Um, and at that point, uh, they said without without treatment, I probably have about six months, um, which again, it was 
when you're really not expecting it is is quite a hard one to take but we've kind of been down that road before and I think I one of the things that myself and my husband and, and, and my children we just never I never actually quite believe what I'm told when I'm given a terminal diagnosis um, and I just try and ignore it and bury it as much as possible and keep going um, but they couldn't keep I said early surgery is the best option um, for sarcoma and it is but they can't keep chopping into you until you're just a pair of eyeballs on a pillow We opened with Emily not having a particularly great day, but understatement aside, she hasn't had a good four years. How does someone like Emily stay standing despite all that's thrown at them? What is resilience? Okay, so a definition of resilience at its really simplest sense, and uh, it's about people's ability to bounce back. So some people call it bounce back ability. My name's Jonathan Renison and I work for the Yellow Chair and we provide resilience training and development opportunities for organisations and also for leaders within organisations. But a definition that I like to use that comes from training and resilience is about it being a capacity to prepare for, recover from and adapt in the face of stress, challenges or adversity. And one of the key things there is that it's a capacity. So like, if you think of a capacity being like a battery, a battery can be on full charge or it can be empty. So it's about your energy and your ability. And like all capacity, it can be kept topped up and renewed, or it can be depleted and run down. So resilience does change and vary. It isn't a static thing. So how does that apply to Emily? I don't know is the answer to that. Because usually, and in, times, in the past, when I've been involved in any kind of crisis, the moment you speak to or see somebody you love, you, you fall apart. And I guess the truth is, if I, if I think back, I mean, it's a few years now, I probably did fall apart, um, but not for very long. And actually, I, I guess it's the role that you've always played within your family as well, right? So I, I, as the person giving this news, I was also the one that understood it more than anything. I've worked in cancer research. I've written patient information on sarcoma. I've trained people on one of the drugs that I've been on. So almost the way I told people was to then adopt the role of almost like the healthcare professional I suppose explaining it and and I guess that's a really unique thing for me but maybe perhaps that's what helps me is focusing in on the science because the science is what I've always understood and communicating science is what I've always been good at a lot of the time now I mean there's been a lot of bad news um I'm much better at communicating when I write than when I speak particularly with people that I care about or if I'm very emotional so it tends to be text which sounds really pathetic and like you know oh well I'm telling everyone on Twitter but it's it's not like that at all it's just I can I can say what I mean if I write it much easier than if I speak it and I also think for people I'll meet somebody for the first time and I just unknowingly say something and 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 then end up end up just telling them within seconds that I've got a terminal illness and you see them just like struggling to react and what do I say and how do I deal with this and actually I found it almost helped my friends and my family if they'd read something beforehand because then they could deal with it a little bit more and talk to me because people are so busy, you know, you have your automatic reaction to some kind of news like that when your friend gives it to you. But you also, like, desperately, you almost don't want to show it. You don't want to show how upset you are or how devastated you are for them. And it, it's an interesting thing. You, you, as, as the person at the centre of the crisis, you, you find yourself helping people cope with it much more than you yourself. And, and you know, there were, there were people 
people actually that I barely know that you know I became the cancer lady at school and, and I would have somebody coming up to me in the playground and I was standing in the middle of the playground comforting and hugging somebody that I don't even know um, and I, I think one of the things I've done is probably move a bit beyond that now because I'm like hang on yeah a lot of the time early on it, I found it easier for it to be about everybody else but actually a lot of the time and sometimes it is about me as well Listening again to Emily's description of how she found out she had cancer and the way her life changed, and I notice even more the mismatch between the breezy way that she speaks and the pretty unpleasant reality of what she's gone through and what she is going through. I asked Emily to keep an audio diary of the rest of her day, and she was she was up for it. The rest of this episode, then, is Emily's afternoon as she waits at the hospital before going back home to Wiltshire. She starts off after a restorative swim, and then we hear her describe the waiting around and the increasing effect of the chemotherapy drugs. It's not easy listening, but it's important listening. And I'm grateful that Emily lets us in on the whole warts and all exhausting experience. Again, this is all very real. I think from the outside it probably seems a bit weird coming up on your own and doing all the treatment stuff on your own. So uh, I just want to say that actually I didn't start off like this. Uh, I've been on treatment at the Marsden for I think uh, it's about 20 months now and when I was first on treatment I was on quite a a major systemic therapy called doxorubicin as well as the trial drug which is at at that time it was a trial drug, oloratumab. I was pretty physically incapable of getting myself here and back uh, and so every week a different one of my friends or my husband or somebody else would come and hang out and uh, and I do have legions of people that would come and do the same thing but actually as time's gone on and I'm just on the oloratumab I'm relatively uh, well on it and actually it's just easier to come up and back on the train on my own and sometimes one of my London friends comes and meets me for lunch and I know if I wanted company I could have company and um, it's quite nice to know that but also to be honest I fill my time now with going to the gym and uh, there's the King's Road if I want to go and shop Um, and actually it's okay it's only on the days when you get bad news that you're not expecting Uh, usually when I'm getting scan results I try and have somebody with me Um, but uh, I had a situation recently where I was uh, I just had a a scan to back up another scan and um, found out uh, when I was on my own that I had another five tumours that I wasn't expecting to hear about Um, days like that uh, then you do need somebody but most of the rest of the time actually I've got my nice little pattern of uh, getting my Boris bike from the station cycling across the park and and then getting to the gym during the day and then now I'm going to sit and have some lunch and read my book and it's sunny and that's okay really and then back to the hospital so I've just uh, finishing the counsellor and now I've got just over an hour before my treatment is due so I'll head down to MDU there's kind of not much point leaving the hospital now and I'm quite tired after the swimming and everything so I'm going to go and sit down with my computer for now and a bit um the first thing I'm going to do is check in. So MDU is the medical day unit, which is where you get your chemotherapy given. Um, and uh, hopefully mine was all okayed this morning and sent off to pharmacy. The problem that happens sometimes 
here is that pharmacy runs quite a long time behind, especially on a Wednesday. Wednesday, there are a lot of patients in for sarcoma treatment, and because sarcoma is pretty rare, people are coming from all over the place. So they're what you call two-stop patients like me, where you've come for bloods in the morning and then treatment in the afternoon. If you live more locally, you could have your bloods done the day before and try and avoid the wait time. But it's just the way it is. But um, often, um, yeah, things can be running a bit later than planned, so we'll see what happens. Hopefully, I can get a chair number and then I can go and sit in one of their comfy chairs and lie back and have a bit of a snooze and wait for my treatment to arrive. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. So it's 20 past four now and um, I'm sitting in the MDU waiting area. Um, one of the staff nurses has just been long to tell us they tell everybody waiting that pharmacies running behind and uh, treatments will be arriving any time between the next 10 minutes and two hours so <laughs> uh, yeah it's looking like it's going to be a late one today um, to be honest about a year and a half ago I used to get a little bit worried uh, and want things to happen on time but you just kind of go with it and there's no point getting upset because it's actually none of the nurses' fault here that things run behind, so you just kind of learn to cope with it. Anyway, with any luck, I'll be in the chair in the next hour or so. And then once I'm in the chair, it's usually only two hours after that. Um, but at the moment, I'm just looking at the clock and thinking that in about 45 minutes, I will have been up and on the go to get to the hospital for 12 hours um, and still haven't been treated. So <laughs> that's the reality of the day. Anyway, so it's now 4.35 and still sitting and waiting, so uh, hopefully at some point they'll call me through. It gets harder at this stage of the day because I'm quite tired and you start to be conscious of the fact that the whole treatment process takes at least two hours and then it can take me two or three hours to get home as well, so usually I'm really quite, um, I think the only word is stoned after <laughs> treatment because I have quite a reaction to the drugs so they have to give me a whopping dose of antihistamines which make me initially very sleepy and then um, just very out of it so the journey home is always an adventure but it's looking like it's going to be a particularly late one tonight but we'll see hopefully my treatment will arrive up here at some point soon so it's now coming up to ten past five and uh, there were three of us left in the waiting room and <laughs> still not being called. It's pretty full and the Marsden today and the pharmacy's tripped itself up so everything is running behind. So I think my treatment was ordered at 11, 11.30 this morning um, but it hasn't made it downstairs yet and it's five past five. It's quite hard in this situation to not get really disgruntled. Uh, and I've been talking to a couple of my fellow patients who've also got long drives. Uh, and one lady who has to have the cold cap, so uh, that's the, the, the one to help you have. It adds an extra two hours to your treatment time. So she's going to be here till very, very late. Um, it just has an impact on everyone, including the poor nurses who are due to finish at either five or eight and end up stuck here much longer. Anyway, uh, I'm in quite a lot of pain from my back uh, and the recent uh, liver surgery, so uh, I've asked to go and sit through at MDU, so that's all the beeping that you can hear in the background. Basically, the beeping's when somebody's treatment is finished or stalled for whatever reason. So, um, yeah, sitting in the MDU at the moment. I'm in chair number six today, lucky number six, uh, and... Oh, wait, they're going to access my port so they can give me my treatment, but my treatment's still not come up yet. Um, but the way things work, I have to have a...
coffee drug 30 minutes before I can have the chemotherapy so that's a cocktail of um, antihistamine and uh, stomach protectors and steroids and um, <laughs> it makes me completely and utterly stoned so yeah, I'll probably stop recording at that point it's half past five and uh, you might notice a slight difference in the way I'm talking because I've just uh, had all my pre-meds done so um, my nurse today is Rosie and she's been along and given me all the pre-med injections and uh, I'm just going to grab a pillow and catch some sleep um, and then I've got 30 minutes before I start the infusion of Oloratumab so um, I, I shall lean back in my chair and have a bit of a sleep it's 7 o'clock now and I'm just finishing off with the infusion of Oloratumab so I think I'll be done and out here probably about 7.15 or 7.30 it's been quite a long day in the grand scheme of things uh, when I actually get to leave uh, I will have been in the hospital for just under 12 hours I think it'll be 11 hours and 45 minutes since I walked in through the doors this morning um, so it's a pretty long day and uh, quite a long way to go yet because I've got to get home as well anyway, um, MDU's pretty quiet now it's just me and perhaps three other people um, they're actually supposed to be completely all finished by 7 o'clock but um, because pharmacy delays everything uh, people end up here for much longer and the guys that have the cold caps and other treatments than me um, are going to be here much later than I am so I should count myself lucky really anyway um, yeah so that's it nearly finished treatment I've had a lovely hour and a half solid artificial sleep and uh, yeah looking forward to starting my journey home so this very empty sound is the sound of my footsteps walking along a very empty corridor at half past seven on the way home finally allowed out there's somebody else here I feel a little bit like the whole place has gone under siege but um here we go leaving the Marston and the really sad thing today so it's the 10th of October today which meant that when I left home this morning I had to defrost my car and it was foggy and it was dark and it was cold and now I've just come outside and it has been a beautiful beautiful autumn day but it's dark which means I'm probably going to fall asleep on the way home so I'm going to have to tell somebody on the train that uh, they need to keep an eye on me and let me know when I get to my stop because uh, otherwise I'll be uh, heading down to Plymouth or somewhere else so there we go and here we are on the tube station as you can hear in the background it's a bit busy down here despite the fact it is now pretty late um, one of the things about me is that I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing sometimes it works in my favour sometimes it doesn't I don't look sick I don't look like somebody with terminal cancer that's riddled with tumours and has just had a whole load of drugs um, pumped into their system to try and counteract it so the problem is when the tube's really full I don't get a seat there is uh, I tend to ask them to leave my hospital band on so that I can at least point to that and ask somebody um, because the truth is by this stage of the day I'm usually feeling ready to throw up all over the place and I can't actually remain standing um, so <laughs> it's always a little bit of a nerve-wracking thing coming down the tube and I hate the tube anyway but uh, it's not too far I'm only going from um, South Kensington to Paddington and uh, I've gotten more ballsy about asking people to get out of the way but, yeah thankfully for once, I only have about a one minute wait for the right tube, so uh, I will be on my way in a minute.